Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Levi, Reservoir Dogs is the movie we watched this week. We are going through Quentin Tarantino's canon, and we are starting with his seminal film, Reservoir Dogs. So, uh, in 30 seconds or less, give me your general thoughts on this uh, on this rewatch of Reservoir Dogs. Holy crap. Um, it's been a while since I've watched this one, and I forgot just how good it is. Um, I really, I think over the course of seeing so many Tarantino films at this point, especially with his newer stuff like Inglorious Bastards, when he's got like much larger budgets, it's mm-hmm. just a fantastic film, and just it's so simple. The special effects are no, we don't need those because the story is so good. It's told so concisely, and I was watching it, and one thing that struck me is that this is a stage play. This could be Shakespeare just as much as anything else. Watching how these scenes are set up, how the dialogue works how the back and forth happens and i just loved it it's such a fantastic first movie i mean it's a pretty strong first showing i was uh watching this uh documentary about back to the future and dan Harmon was uh, one of the people who's being interviewed dan Harmon, the creator of community and host of the Harmon town podcast but uh he was talking about how like the first act of back to the future shouldn't work because it's basically all exposition and it's not only exposition, but it's like, like hardcore science, like gobbledygook (laughs) exposition, (laughs) but, and yet it all works out to make like this really rip roaring fun film. And I kind of see that, uh, see reservoir dogs in that same vein. Like this is a pretty masterful work of writing. Like, um, it in many ways, it shouldn't work from a movie structure standpoint because, I mean, we could talk about this and I, we'll get to it, but like, I don't know who the protagonist of this movie is. I don't know who the antagonist of this movie is. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to figure out when plot point one happens, which is basically the point of no return. And it either happens in the first 30 seconds of the movie or it happens an hour into the movie. So it's like there's so many things about this movie that shouldn't work, and yet it works, man. And when that final scene happens, when Mr. White gets gunned down by the cops at the warehouse and falls out of frame, and then this is written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, it's a very satisfying ending. Uh, Even if the ride's a little bumpy, it still still holds up pretty well. Um, Nearly 20, what is it, 25 years later? So I, I, I thought it's, I think it's a great... Um, freshman effort from a director. I think it's rough around the edges a little bit, but um, uh, and I'm not I'm not really sure this movie could be made today or would be as popular if it was made today. Actually, I think it's still. I think those movies still occur. I'm trying to think of the you know you think about like Moon, which I know I'm trying to think of how recent that one was, but you know that's a a simple story based. It has you know the setting is a little more fantastic um, than Reservoir Dogs, but it's a similar. I think ambiance in the sense of it's a lot of it's just a lot of dialogue, you know, the and the tension is really kind of all dependent upon pulling the viewer in into these characters because there's yeah. I think the 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 a lot of what Tarantino does masterfully is these conversations that don't necessarily relate to the to an to obvious do. narrative. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing to do about with the story. Madonna and like a virgin, like what? And it's a really good introduction for anybody who's never seen his films because you're asking yourself, what the hell is going on? And you know, and the it does a great job of just the cameras just circling the table. You're going behind people like a bunch of you know stuff that probably they don't they tell you in film school not to do you know long just black cuts but you're still hearing people talking well there was weird cuts too because it was like they would go behind in that opening scene the camera would move behind somebody so the screen would go black and then they cut to a different camera angle so it's like these weird things where you would pan to black and then cut to a different angle which is yeah it's not something that i actually found it a little jarring 
from a cinematography standpoint. But yeah, it's not something that you would, you know, do in a that would that would be taught or or endorsed, I think, by a lot of cinematographers or editors. Anyway, c- keep going. Um, and I just I, it's great. It's a because while you're trying to figure that out, I think it sets a, a tone for anybody that's coming into this movie fresh. If you don't know what to expect, and Tarantino keeps doing it in a lot of his films. I think about the the start of Inglorious Bastards when he has the really long conversation between uh, Christoph Waltz and the the Frenchman. You know, it's just talking, 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 and it builds up. You're trying, and that whole time you're just, at least for myself, whenever I watch Tarantino and whenever these scenes arise, because uh, I, I vividly remember one in Death Proof as well. Um, you just it gives you time as a viewer to be like what am I supposed to be watching for? And I think by the time you get to the end of those conversations, you're like, fuck it. What, let, where are we going? Let's see what's up. Like it, yeah. it stops you from being like, all right, so the transformers are from Transformatron. <laughs> They're looking for the power. Like when other movies right. open up and they have to give this whole backstory and they're trying to front load like a plot. I think Tarantino uh, yeah. likes to do the obvious. I mean, I do think it's interesting that the first line of Quentin, Tarant- Quentin Tarantino's first movie is spoken by Quentin Tarantino. Which, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever. It's your movie, man. You do, you do your thing. But I, I do kind of want to talk about these characters because when I say a movie like this, I'm not sure if it would be as popular today. Um, I'm talking about, like, the edginess of their conversations, Oh, and yeah, yeah. like the overt racism and the misogyny and like in a, in a lot of ways uh i feel like the guys in this movie are, are are not incredibly likable i think that there's you know there there are a few like i i the person i found myself gravitating toward the most was mr pink um and i think that mr white is kind of a sympathetic character because he is pretty naive and you know has forges this kind of fatherly relationship with Mr. Orange but you know I you know I didn't necessarily like I don't really think that uh, if I was sitting at a table listening to Quentin Tarantino tell me that his fan theory on Madonna's like a virgin I would find that story very compelling <laughs> is it uh, weird that I found myself drawn to Mr. Blonde it's super weird <laughs> <laughs> But I, I I would love to just dive right into these characters because um, I do feel like there's a certain amount of immaturity that's associated with them, and I think that that's brought out throughout the film. I mean, the playground is mentioned twice in this film. First, uh, there's a fight between Mister White and Mister Blonde when Mister Blonde shows up at the warehouse. They start fighting each other. Mister Pink breaks and he's like, "What are we on a playground here?" And then Joe, when he's assigning the names in order to get everybody's attention, he's like, "All right, joking around like you're on the playground." There is, I feel like there is kind of this inherent immaturity to these guys. I do feel kind of like their conversations are would be really more fitting if they were being spoken by like sixteen or seventeen year olds. Well, and I wonder if that's some of that's related to. So we, we, let's jump into Mister Blue first, just because he mm-hmm. dies almost immediately. I don't know that right. he even has a line in the movie. Um, but when I was just doing a quick check, making sure I had all the names for actors. Edward Bunker had like a criminal history, like a like a solid criminal history, armed mm-hmm. robbery, forgery, no no murder on there. Um, but you know he's <laughs> that they found out about. It's written. It's um, I read somewhere that he you know he was involved in some of the story, and I wonder if that's his contribution. Is you know after a life of crime, like yeah, all these people are while they're doing these serious things. They're, they're inside, you know, that there's an immaturity because that's got to be required for crime, right? Like you don't grow up, be an adult, get a job and go, hmm, you know what might be better? <laughs> Some time in prison. Yeah. Let's yeah, press yeah. my luck. I Why think not? that you have to have that immaturity. And that's, I mean, Mr. Pink, the whole movie is showing like, act like a professional. I'm a professional. Yeah. He's the grown up. He's the grown up of the group. <laughs> like even his long uh, you know, expositional story is about the ethics of tipping and why shouldn't you tip somebody at McDonald's, but you should tip somebody at a diner. Like, it's like, 
it, the conversation he basically elevates it and it kind of like goes over everybody's head <laughs> in a lot of ways. I mean, there and in is, the end, they just make him put the dollar in. Yeah, exactly. But it, but, it, but they put the he puts a dollar in based on a reasonable argument of I paid for your breakfast, so you put the tip <laughs> in. Like he's the he's the reasonable guy, and he happens and to be the one that lives. Well, yeah, he's. And, and you know, the, I feel like these marks of kind of that immaturity are, are all around. Even with Mister Orange, who's who's an undercover police officer, uh, like you go to his apartment and it's like it's a pigsty, and he's got like uh, you Fantastic know a Silver Four. Surfer comic on the wall and like brings up the thing when he's describing yeah. Joe. Yeah. So I I do feel like yeah I feel like um, in a lot of ways these guys are kind of stuck in that sixteen or seventeen year old mindset. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think that, like you said, that really kind of paints these characters as, like, in their place. Like, what kind of people would do a heist like this? Like, really, what kind of people would be stupid enough to try to pull something like this off, you know? Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it is interesting. Uh, I, I would love to ask you and get your take on this. Why do you think Mr. Blue and even Mr. Brown, Quentin Tarantino, are in this movie? Because really, their characters don't really add anything to the <laughs> entire movie, except for the Like a Virgin story. I think Quentin Tarantino just really likes being in his own movies. Yeah. Like, just based after having seen all of them, he, all, he tends to pop up. Um, and I'm always curious whether he thinks he's a good actor, or he doesn't give a shit, and he just wants to have fun, which would be well, my he's, guess. Well, he set out to be an actor. Like, that, if you his early life, he was trying to become an actor. And then kind of went into writing and directing. But that acting bug was, you know, in recent interviews, he says it's basically gone. Like his cameo in, Qu- in uh, Django Unchained, he basically just filmed that because they have to keep moving that scene around. And he didn't want to have to hire an actor and be like, oh, we can't do the scene now. <laughs> so he basically just put himself in there to save time. But he also states that, like, he's basically given up the acting bug and he is a full on director now. But when he was younger, he was all about being a direct or an actor. So. Uh, I, yeah, put him put put yourself in the movie. Give yourself the first line. You know why not, and then kill yourself off. <laughs> <laughs> I think the reason they're they're in it. This is my interpretation: is that it it adds some weight to the occurrences off screen because you see them at the beginning, and then they're they're gone. I think it adds some tension too because you keep waiting for who's going to show up at the rendezvous. Hmm, yeah, you know you don't find out Blue is really dead until the end, and. I was watching it with Liz, who and she's never seen it before, and like the Liz cop being reveal, your wife. Liz being your wife for the Liz is my wife. Who don't know, <laughs> um, she'd never seen it before, and so the reveal when Mister Orange is the cop, like I forgot that that's a because that's if you hadn't seen it before, you know that first up until they reveal that he is the cop. Um, it really changes the the watch and what you're because you're trying to get you're like oh who's who's who was it who who sold them out you know, right why, who is because the guy? pink makes such a strong argument for the fact that they were sold out you know like the cops were just there i mean that does yeah. lend itself to a somebody sold us out and so you're wondering who and i think by having blue not around um and brown not around it huh. leaves it open to interpretation so I, I like that point a lot, actually, because, yeah, when you watch multiple re- re- reviews of this movie, you're like, oh, yeah, Mr. Orange is the, is, the, is the cop. That reveal doesn't happen until 60 minutes into the movie. Like, I, I paused it when it happened because I was like, geez, that seems like a long time. And it is. And, uh, and so I, I do like that take that Mr. Blue and Mr. Brown allow you to have those people out there that could be the cop. And especially if you're looking for, like, color symbolism, Mr. Blue... Like oh. th- that should be the cop, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that is an interesting take. Uh, but really, you know, this movie revolves around four characters, and that's Mister Pink, Mister Orange, Mister White, and Mister Blonde. And I really feel like these four characters kind of represent polar opposites of each other. I feel like Mister Blonde and Mister White are opposites of each other, and I feel like Mister Orange and Mister Pink are opposites of each other. And it's kind of my reasoning around that. Basically, for me. Uh, you know, I feel like, I feel like Mr. Blonde basically is like death. <laughs> it basically <laughs> represents death. And Mr. White basically represents life. But he's, he's got this naivety 
to him that's you know almost well it is it's 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 essentially his folly at the end of the movie it's pretty naive whereas mr blonde is just vicious and uh overwhelming um like you know you could say mr blonde is hard and mr white is soft mr blonde is called a rabbit's foot by joe uh mr white at the beginning of the movie says that he's jinxed so they basically are like polar opposites playing off each other. And I feel like orange and pink are similar. And it's just that like Miss, uh, Mr. Orange is basically lying and deceiving everybody. <laughs> Whereas Mr. Pink is trying to tell the truth to everybody and knock some sense into people. Um, and I thought it was interesting, like how the, how those dynamics kind of set each other up because, uh, you know, Mr. White and, uh, you know, Mr. Orange obviously have like this father son relationship and, and then they're kind of being kind of bombarded on opposite sides by their polar opposites. That's kind of something that I was thinking about when I thought about the characters. I think White's, I think Harvey Keitel does such a good job with, with in just imbuing every conversation with Mr. Orange, with Tim Roth, like with that fatherly like doting. It really is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I would love to see a little bit more about why, you know, why Larry or Mr. White is, has that relationship. Like, it's, there's got to be, it's kind of implied there that maybe he lost a son or maybe he always wanted a son and never had one and then kind of identified this kid as, as that kind of, kind of character. But it is totally like this father son dynamic. You know, one of the first things that Mr. Orange asks Mr. White when they get to the warehouse is, can you just hold me? I'm scared. Can you hold me? Uh, but there's nothing to really explain that, like why Mr. White and Mr. Orange had that relationship, other than like this small scene where they're casing the the jewelry shop and they have like this back and forth dialogue about how to deal with difficult people during a heist. So I don't know. It's, I, I kind of wish that there was a little bit more behind why Mr. White might have this relationship with Mr. Orange. Because it's never really explained. But that's the... I mean, I think that's one of the beauties of good filmmaking is when they leave those gaps. I think it's the reason that Star Wars is so popular because there's just so much else that they don't have time to explain. And as a viewer and as an audience, there's that opportunity to come in and just build. You know, you... You come up with your own theories that are always going to be better. You're going to find them better because they're your theories than anything that a filmmaker could have come up with. Um, <laughs> well, they'll be truer to you, at least. Yeah, they make... There's. I'm trying to think, like, uh, Inception. It's one of the beauties of Inception is, like, you know, is it is the whole thing just a dream? Or, you know, if there is a world with this kind of technology, what exists beyond that? You know, they just hint at people having roles and then... You know, I get up in my own head and I'm like, oh my God, what are these other roles? And maybe that's because the architect is a role there. And so I get <laughs> self-referential. Yeah, oh, so bad. Um, well, you, but you know, that's, I, I like that a lot because I'm one of these people that when I watch a movie, instead of being like, why would they do that? I say, why would they do that? Like, <laughs> you know, actually ask the question like what are the why would a person do that i'm not the type of person who needs to project myself onto every character and be like you know uh well if i don't understand it logically then then it can't be a an actual way that a human would react it's like there are things this is a complex human being you're watching at most 60 minutes of their life <laughs> maybe you could fill in some of the blanks yourself and maybe it's it's not worth uh, you know spending the time uh, unveiling all of this stuff. Although that's so. one of the nice things about this movie is that there is sort of a real time clock, more so than most movies, you know. Yeah. And while we're jumping around, there is that same scene that we can. So it is. It's a drum. It's that sixty minutes of that life are you know probably the most tense sixty minutes of Mister Orange's life ever. So you get <laughs> yeah. I think, sucked in faster. Do you? believe in the tarantino universe the idea that yeah his movies all exist in the same alternate reality where people are more racist more violent well it's it uh, you know tarantino has actually talked about this and there's a direct connection between this movie and uh and pulp fiction in that vincent vega and vic vega are brothers so john travolta's character in pulp fiction is brothers with mr blonde um, 
So that's like a direct connection. But the idea, yeah, we might as well get into the Tarantino universe, which is basically Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction uh, and Jackie Brown all take place in the same universe. They just have certain people who look almost exactly the same in all of those movies. Uh, uh, Kill Bill is like a movie that would be watched in that universe. Um, and Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained are basically the history of that universe, the alternate the alternate, uh, you know, a view askew if you're a Kevin Smith fan of, <laughs> uh, of the, uh, of the world, and, and basically that those world events led to, the era where people speak the way that they do in you know Reservoir Dogs, um, so I I I like to think I like to approach it that way. I think that that's an interesting way to think about things as we move forward throughout the throughout the film canon. And I'd love to try to make some direct connections, especially when we get into the historical works, which are later in his canon, um, to try to tie that into the the more um, you know uh, current works uh, like Reservoir Dogs and and uh, Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown, for that matter. So, what, do you believe in it? Yeah, you know, I had heard the same. You know, like I had heard him discuss it. I was just curious because the more I when I read about it, um, the one where it came up was in. Uh, kill bill there's like a sword holder on the plane for her katana and i was looking up trying to figure out what the hell like why would that be there and that was when i had found tarantino talking about like all these movies being in this you know like it's the peak of japanese comfort a place to put your sword in a universe this violent so but there are moments where i'm you know there's it's a i think a a tentative Right, it's not something that has to yeah, be he doesn't he doesn't take and... it seriously, but it right. is. I'm I'm glad. I just wanted to bring it up and make, and so that we can we can have that conversation as we move forward in there, because it is you know we talk about yeah. the 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 language and the violence of these movies, and they do exist at a scale much higher than typical reality. Although <laughs> I think Tarantino argues that it, these are how his characters would speak in real life. So, well, yeah, and they all kind of also speak like quentin tarantino <laughs> uh, so yeah let's get back to the characters though because it's basically this movie is about four characters um and we get backgrounds on three of them we get full title slides for mr white mr blonde and mr orange um i, I really like these background scenes with in joe's office with the giant elephant tusks behind him because uh you know, just the way that the movie kind of reveals itself, it basically shows you how they all ended up at the heist. Um, and Quentin Tarantino in this movie, he's got this kind of rule of three things going on where he'll show you the same thing twice. And then the third time he shows it to you, it's a little bit different and it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit uh, varied and it, it kind of, uh, I feel like it's the idea where he sets you up for something by showing it to you twice, but then the third time he shows it to you, it's completely askew, um, to use that term one more time. Uh, and, and the way what I'm getting at here is the first two title slide scenes, Mr. White and Mr. Blonde, were in Joe's office, and we see, get some background on, on Vega and Larry. Uh, and then the third time we get a title slide, it's Mr. Orange, and then it's Mr. Orange walking into the diner. So like, it's the idea where he kind of sets you up to... Sets you up for one thing, but then, but then, kind of throws something else at you. The second time that this happens, that I noticed it was with K. Billy Super Sounds of the seventies. <laughs> so basically, uh, there's two times where K. Billy comes on uh, as a DJ, followed by a song. The first one is right in the opening, right after the diner scene when they're walking, um, when they're walking down that iconic, iconic slow motion scene at the beginning of the movie. Uh, the second time is a little bit later in the movie when he talks about the monster truck rally. Um, and then the third time, there's actually no DJ, but then the third time that they listen to K. Billy Super Sounds of the 70s is when Mr. Blonde is doing the torture scene with the cop. So it's kind of this idea that Quentin Tarantino is setting you up for setting you up with the same thing twice and then the third time kind of throwing a curveball at you. So it's like the first two times we see Mr. White and Mr. Blonde. Uh, they're in Joe's office the third time. It's Mr. Orange getting his assignment. And then the K-Billy thing. Um, 
but yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. I know you wanted to talk about the music. What in the what in this rewatch kind of uh, struck you from a musical perspective? Well, you know, I was looking for the the beats to line up, and I think that you're right in the sense that uh, the threes, especially with the music, because the first shot when they're walking slow mo down the alley, he really lines like part of the slow motion is that it lines up the with their walking a little bit. It's not, it's not perfect, but it's close. Right. And then the second time, um, trying to look through my notes now and see where I had written down. Cause there was another point where it really was people moving with the, <laughs> I think it was a doll Parton song, but then if it, <laughs> I, I remember seeing it, I remember the, the scene lined up. And then when we get to the ear torture scene, um, it's just straight up Michael Madsen dancing. They don't even, right. you know, it's not just watching the movements of the scene occur. Um, if you watch in the commode story when they're at mm-hmm. the bar and he's telling the story, um, there's a song in the background. I don't remember what the song was, but it was very much his uh, timing with the story. The way he told it was actually closely in time with the song behind him too Hmm. um so i like the i'm trying to think of what other things came in threes we see the commode story in threes yeah we see him practicing it in his apartment practicing it in front of holdaway and then him telling the story and when he tells it that time we see him in the moment of the story which i thought we actually see him standing in the back in the bathroom telling the story yeah, I want to go back to the music, though, real quick. With the music in this movie, every single song in this movie, uh, except for the closing credits, is basically practical music, which I think is amazing. Like, there are no songs in this film that are just playing along as a background track over the over the pictures. Everything is practical. It's all in the scene. So it's either being played on the radio um, even scenes where I was like, "Oh, this this is the scene. This is the scene where where he's just he just put a song behind it." Uh, then, like Mr. Orange walks over and turns off the radio, <laughs> and it's like, "Oh, so everything in this movie is all of the music in this movie is practical music." There's nothing like there's long, long uh, pieces of dialogue that have no music under them whatsoever. In fact, I think that there's probably a twenty minute break between the first song during that walk up scene and then the next song being played in the movie. Um, it's really, really interesting. And, you know, I think that he also, Quentin Tartino kind of breaks up the tension that's built by all of this dialogue with like a great action scene. I love the heist scene with Mr. Pink running down. He's the, racing uh, down the street. It's so hectic, you know? He's just like barreling down the street. And I don't know what it is about it because I guess it's, you know, it's really shot like super gorilla style, but it's still, um, it's all like steady. Like there's not a lot of handheld stuff. So even like when you're, when they're tracking the cops running down, there's, you know, a steady cam there. So it's not like a jostling, you know, Jason Bourne effect. Obviously Jason Bourne hadn't been made yet, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's, I, I, I just kind of love the way that it's shot. What it really reminded me of, I don't know. Have you seen uh, season two of true detective? Yes. I, it reminded me of the shootout in season two of true detective in that. Cause I thought that shootout scene in true detective was, like really intense and the stakes were really high, but the whole thing was shot pretty much on like steady cams, which I thought was really cool. Um, yeah. And you know, uh, I think that Quentin Tarantino kind of notices when his dialogue and his long exposition is kind of getting wary. And then he breaks it up with like either shooting the K Billy super songs of the seventies or shooting off to like an, an action scene, which is really like, I guess there's two real action scenes in the movie, but he, he uses those to break up the dialogue. It's all about the dialogue in this movie. Yeah, I'm curious to see as we move forward, um, because now I'm trying to think through like the music of other of the other of his other films and how much there is because you know he's known for his soundtracks, yeah. and I think it will be. But this one feels so sparse when you, you know, I think when people think back, like you can. You know, you remember the music, but it's really used to pretty minimally. 
Yeah, you get it's it's well one thing it's really expensive to license songs. I think like there's a story <laughs> like the, the majority of the likes. budget. Yeah, there's a story like the majority of the budget went to stuck in the with the licensing stuck in the middle with you for this. Worth movie. it. Yeah, Worth it. I sang that song despite the kind of madness of that scene. Liz left the room. She was like, "Oh no!" And she just got up and walked away. She couldn't. <laughs> can't handle it she doesn't do brutality well and she could see where that was going and she got the f out (laughs) well he's psycho man it's like he literally just looks at the guy and he's like i don't really care what you tell me i'm just gonna torture you because i think it's fun to torture a cop although it's sadistic you talk about you want to talk about characters let's talk about mr blonde for a second and especially the and maybe we can i'm trying to figure out if we can roll this into a segue from the music, but you know, that mm-hmm. those calms and the, those, the tension and then the calm of when the music comes on. And then this is a moment where the music comes on and it's madness. Um, and Mr. Blonde, they talk about him being such a psychopath. Right. And that's really the only moment where you get just an idea <laughs> of how nuts he is because the rest of the time, you know, they, the, it's a, Mr. Pink and Mr. White are arguing and that, you know, they've got the guns on each other and it's this super test and the camera's just slowly pulling out and you're trying to figure <laughs> out why it's pulling. And he's just sitting there drinking a soda. Right. This guy just murdered like seven people, took a cop hostage, threw him in the trunk, then went to in and out <laughs> and had like a burger and fries. Supposedly that soda is actually from Taco Bell. The guy that played the cop, uh, Kirk Baltz, wanted to, like, ride in the trunk. He wanted to get a real feel for what it was like. And apparently Michael Madsen, like, locked him in the trunk, drove him down an alley full of potholes, went through a Taco Bell drive-thru, and that the soda that he's drinking in that shot is the soda he got from the drive-thru. Wow. According to IMDb's trivia page. (laughs) Well, you know that's got to be right. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's... um... It is interesting. I, I watched an interview with Quentin Tarantino that he did like right after this movie, and it sheds some really great insight into a bunch of things about the movie uh, and about Quentin Tarantino in general. The first of which is that you know the the K Billy Super Sounds of the seventies. It he basically says that he uses that as kind of a way to lift the tension a little bit because the movie gets real heavy. So he uses that to kind of pull people out and say. You know, there's a monster truck rally. <laughs> I love the monster <laughs> truck rally. That's like my favorite part. Um, but then that third time when uh, when Mr. Blonde turns on the radio, he wanted Stuck in the Middle with You because it has kind of an up-tempo, happy beat. You see Mr. Blonde start dancing to it, and then all of a sudden you become complicit in the scene because you're having a good time, and this cop's getting his ear cut off. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um so it's this great push and pull that he uses in the music. Another great thing that he had in this interview um, is kind of his his view, his take on violence in cinema, which I think is really interesting because there's that famous interview that surfaced a few years ago of him talking to a British uh, British uh, news reporter, um, and the news reporter is trying to kind of paint him into a corner with like you know all this violence in your films. And Quentin Tarantino has this, uh, like a line where he says, I'm shutting your butt down. I'm not going to answer your question. He also defers and says, I've answered that question so many times. And I was like, well, I haven't really heard your answer. But this one, this interview has the answer. Um, basically, Quentin Tarantino sees violence as a genre of film. He, it's There's a disconnect between violence on film and violence in you know the real world for him. And I think for me as well. Uh, basically what he says is that, you know, violence is aesthetic. You, if you say you like violence, it's like saying you like musicals or you like slapstick comedy. Like there is a certain type of violence that we've been, you know, uh, exposed to through cinema that we would never get exposed to in the real world. And generally in my experience, real world violence is actually much different than cinematic violence. Um, but it's kind of an interesting take here is that, he sees violence more as a genre than some kind of like social statement about why violence is fun and cool. It's like he just enjoys it. He sees it as like a, you know, on on the on par with musicals. So, well, and it sets a a tone and a tension 
uh, all by itself. It it is like music in the sense that you can use as much or as little as you deem necessary. I think as a filmmaker. Yeah. And I think yeah, he I just mean, prefers to crank it to eleven. <laughs> yeah, some guys, some guys, you know, would would just have Mister Mister Orange sitting there with like a little bit of blood on his shirt. Quentin Tarantino pours a bucket of blood on the floor. Uh, but it's it's actually really interesting. I, you've heard my my bus blood story, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, a quick recap for the listeners. I ride the bus every day uh, here in Seattle. I ride the bus to work and back. And there was one day where, long story short, there was this giant puddle of blood on the bus that I almost stepped in. And, <laughs> like, throughout the... Throughout the time, like, these commuters would, like, walk by this pile of blood, be horrified, but wouldn't say anything to the bus driver because, you know what, guys? We got shit to do. We got places to be. It's early in the morning. We're trying to get to work. And if we told the bus driver, they'd pull it over and it'd be swarming with cops. So, (laughs) (laughs) but that collated blood, like, when I first saw it, I didn't think that it looked like blood. I thought that it looked like somebody had dropped a jar of jelly on the floor. Like, it was... Because it had started to congeal, and it was the same. Like the blood that was around uh, Mister Orange was very similar toward the end of the seed. Like they did a great job making that blood look like blood. Um, just you know, my two cents as a blood expert, as a blood, pu- <laughs> as a blood puddle expert. <laughs> well, I think, first-hand blood puddle experience. I think Tarantino has a a comic book aesthetic sometimes. Oh yeah, and it's. It's got to be conveyed in just a more... Ma- it's the difference between the violence in this film and the violence in, like, Saving Private Ryan. Both equally yeah. violent films, but the intent behind the violence is dr- drastically different, and how it's conveyed is so much different. And I think that, you know, if you're going to talk about violence in film, you can't just, like, single out Tarantino and be like, you do too much violence, but we <laughs> gave that film an Academy Award... Right. Um, Steven Spielberg, fine. <laughs> I mean, he was depicting real violence, so much And even that's QT. not real. The, you know, those scenes are truly traumatic, uh, especially like the D-Day scene. But this is, the Reservoir Dogs is the movie that I always reference whenever I see somebody get shot in a film. And they keep like, especially when they're like holding their stomach and walking around. I call, <laughs> yeah. I call bullshit because... In this movie, they explain, and I've seen it, I think Three Kings brings this up too, like the whole, what actually happens when you get shot. Right. Um, you know, like when the bile starts to get in everything and just like how excruciatingly painful. And that's why, you know, samurais, that's why they did the stomach move and then somebody would cut their head off when they were committing ritual suicide was the stomach. They, you did the stomach because that was the most painful place. So that was like your show of, hey, check me out. I'm totally atoning for this thing I did by making this the worst. And then yeah. your body cuts your head off to like relieve you from how painful that is. But so few movies, people, you know, Vin Diesel gets shot all the time and just keeps on trucking. He's not laying. He should be on the ground going, ah, ah, ah. and that's what makes Tim Roth the best actor. All right. Well, you brought this up, buddy. So we're going to get to Eric's crappy fan theory. now. <laughs> This is Eric's crappy fan theory. Uh, this is the part of the show where I have a crappy fan theory. So take this with a grain of salt. But my crappy fan theory is that Reservoir Dogs is Quentin Tarantino's Marvel movie. Dun, dun, I'm going to go ahead and just let it some dead air yep, sneak in there. <laughs> gonna put some, well, if we're talking about superheroes, Captain Dead Air has to show up. Um, so, and I... The, what I what I'm uh, applying this to is, um, what I'm applying this to is the Fantastic Four references. So yes, we have the Silver Surfer comic on the wall. Yes, we have the reference to Joe as looking like the Thing. But uh, I tried to kind of apply that because I love to try to apply. You know, we talked about the hip hop aesthetic in the in the first episode, putting together things that seem. Um, seem like they're disparate but putting them together in a way that is really that creates something new and a stylistic so i tried to apply uh, a, a fantastic four metaphor to this film and you know like i said there's really four characters in this film because mr blue and mr brown don't really factor in uh past the first scene um but you have 
Johnny Blaze, of course, the Human Torch. Uh, I would say that he would be Mister Blonde. A little bit flies off the handle a little bit, a little unpredictable. Okay. Um, we have Mister Fantastic, who I would say is Mister Orange. He's very flexible. You can get in and out of situations. You know, he's uh, he's malleable to the situation, which is a which is a needed trait for any undercover police officer. That's a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> uh, I would say that the thing. So of course, everybody's like, "Well, the thing's got to be Joe, right?" No, the thing is Mister White. You know, he's a little simple-minded. He can, uh, he could, but when it's clobbering time, he will show up and just gun down two police officers. Well, the in thing the car, is no emotional. He's an emotional creature. That's part of his yes. Fantastic Four plot is that he can't find love. Exactly. He's naive. He's a little naive. But he's uh, and he's a little emotional, but he he knows how to drop the hammer and get the job done. And then the invisible woman, Mister Pink, <laughs> Just you know, so, which is the obvious. Well, I think for a couple reasons. Stairs. One, he's got he's got intuition. He's he's the only one who really knows what's going on. Which you could, if that was extrapolated onto a superhero scale, could become a psychic ability. And he is invisible a lot <laughs> like <laughs> like in that final like i remember the first time i watched this that mexican standoff at the end of the movie uh i completely forgot that he was there like when he gets up and walks out with the diamonds i was like oh shit he's there <laughs> i completely forgot about that he like hides he's like invisible um and then a couple other things silver surfer that's got to be good guy eddie because uh he is the harbinger he shows up before galactus joe comes in and then just destroys everything so that is my fantastic four crappy fan theory you know i went in this into this ready to be skeptical Mm -hmm. but yeah that's a pretty damn good theory actually that's really impressive thank you and it is crappy so i I (laughs) put that put that out right right off the bat go ahead and jump Um, on the bald new forums and yes tell me your opinions (laughs) on eric's Eric's crappy fan theory of the week. Yep. Uh, so this was less of a fan theory, but it's more of uh, kind of what I think. I think it's less of a. I think it's less crappy, but I. I think I could make an argument that Mister Pink is the protagonist of this movie. In a couple of ways. Yeah. Let's hear. Like for one, he is the arc. Like we sure we get Quentin Tarantino's like a virgin story, but everybody remembers the tip thing from the beginning of the movie, right? Um, that so like he's really the first character that we are able to connect with. I didn't connect with Quentin Tarantino's Mister Brown over his like a virgin story, but you start to have an understanding to Mister Pink kind of right off the bat with his, uh, with his you know tipping conundrum, and then he like shows up, um, and a lot of the first part of the movie is dedicated to him. Once he shows up at the warehouse, he's like firing off going off on a bunch of angles he you know uh has a bunch of ideas he's kind of uh trying to pull people along like his adversity is that nobody will jump on his bandwagon to say we should just take this stuff and get the hell out of here he's got an inner um you know he's got this he's got this inner conflict in that he knows somebody is a cop he know he should he knows he shouldn't be there uh and yet he is there and he doesn't really know why he showed up to the warehouse because he has an intuition that is probably call- crawling with police officers. And then finally, he's the only guy who makes it out. <laughs> like, he has the the biggest arc of the movie in terms of what we see on screen. Everybody else has kind of backstory and, uh, you know, exposition. And Mr. Pink is the only guy that we see from start to finish. And that's basically his story is in- ingrained in that movie. We know nothing else about him because we're not supposed to. Well, does you know. he does he actually kill a cop? Do we see him? Oh, well, he shoots a he cop. He shoots at those cops, but does he hit them? Oh, he hits he hits at least one of them. I'm trying to Yeah, there's a scene where it shows like the the fattest cop gets gets, gets uh hit in the no, shoulder. <laughs> oh, only in the shoulder. So he might not die. But right. if you think about it, even Mr. Orange who is the I think that in running for protagonist, he even shoots that woman without without hesitation. To well, boot. but I think that was more self defense. Like, uh, I I feel like that was a that was a knee jerk reaction. That wasn't like premeditated. 
It was like, oh, she shot me. Boom. I'm shooting her. That's like the cop reflex. Yeah, I'm just going for, I'm going for in the, if you want to break it down by the numbers of Mm -hmm. who, you know, in the classic sense of protagonist being the good guy, least deaths, gets away in the end, um, and is (laughs) level head, you know, is the only clear head through the whole thing. Yeah, he's the, he's the adult. He is the adult in the movie. <laughs> I, I will stand by that statement. And I think that's why Mr. Pink's my favorite. I feel like he was the one who was I identify or I I could identify the most with because he gets in the situation and instead of being having his judgment clouded by 14 other things, whether it's being psycho if you're Mr. Blonde or whether it's taking care of Mr. Orange if you're Mr. White or whether it's keeping your story straight while you're bleeding out if you're Mr. Orange. Like, he's the only one who's got, like, this clear head who's like, this is what we need to do. Everybody else is being crazy, and I have to pull along all of these psychos because we are in a crappy, crappy situation right off the bat. So, I, I uh, yeah, I think that, in my opinion, I think he's kind of the, the protagonist of the movie because I mean, the movie doesn't follow classic three-out structure. It also doesn't follow the classic protagonist-antagonist structure, and I think you kind of got to dig to get there. Um, I think the obvious answer is Mr. Orange's protagonist, but I don't think he is at all, actually. <laughs> well, he spends, he doesn't even spend that much of the movie conscious. Right. Well, and, and he also, like like I said, I like for me, plot point one is either when they're in the car and he's screaming, because that is the point of no return. That moves the action forward in a really strong way, and it motivates all of the characters. It motivates Mr. White, which kind of puts the trigger on all of the other character characters moving forward it's either that or it's the mr orange reveal which like i said takes 60 minutes to get to um i don't know i probably having said that i'm probably leaning toward the the car scene as kind of plot point one point of no return um uh we did get a we did get a message on the forum um some people had a little bit of an issue with not seeing the heist um how do you feel about that I think that that was, I think it was great not seeing the heist. I don't know that I need to. It made Mr. Blonde's cut the ear off scene that much more like intense because it's his yeah. one seat. That's when you finally get to see the madness. I think if, and then I wonder where, where would you put the heist in? If you're Quentin Tarantino and you're nonlinear, yeah. where's the heist fit into all of this? Well, for me, it's like, they do such a good job describing the heist that I feel like I have seen it, but I just didn't see it on film. Uh, and I think that goes back to what you were talking about in terms of painting, allowing the, the audience members to paint the picture in their own mind. But like, yeah, there's like this scene when, yeah, Mr. White and Mr. Pink are talking to each other and Mr. White goes, how old do you think that girl was? 20? And Mr. Pink's like, if that, like, that paints a pretty p- clear scene. And then, of course, Mr. White going, bang, bang, bang. Like, they, they, I think they do a good enough job that they don't have to put it in the movie. Well, and if people complain about, like, the violence of Tarantino, like, then you really don't <laughs> want to see that ice scene. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, let's see here. I th- There's also I people on the forums that were talking about um, Nice Guy Eddie not actually right. being shot, but falling over dead. So I have a, I have a little bit of an issue with that. Because I feel like he does get shot. I watched the scene in slow motion. Because Mr. White shoots his gun twice. Now, does he actually extend his... He, he points the gun in Eddie's general direction and fires. He doesn't necessarily shoot it right at Eddie, but he does shoot his gun twice... The first one's at Joe. The second one is in the general direction of Eddie. Might not have hit him, but I feel like that's more of a <laughs> overlook than... Uh, but I, I don't think it's as blatant. Like It's not like he didn't get the gun pointed at him. and there, It's not like there isn't a bullet for him. There's a bullet for him in that scene. Well, and isn't there... Well, one that's a testament to Mr. White's... You're talking about like his profession, his ability. You know, like once right? the fight really comes to... He only needs two bullets for two guys. Even he's like in Wanted, shot. Dude. Um, yeah, and he's, at the, bend, he's bending bullets like wanted. <laughs> well, and isn't he's like the, Angelina Jolie. I'm trying to think to because I didn't see this until after, and then I was thinking about it. Isn't the shot perpendicular to Mr. White's arm? So is the yes. is his arm movement pretty? It must. It probably seems fairly subtle at that angle. It could just well, be. Well, he kind of he basically shoots Joe when he shoot or when he shoots Joe. 
nice guy Eddie shoots him. He then kind of stumbles to the side and kind of uh, his wrist goes a little bit limp and then he fires the bullet in Eddie's direction. So, yeah, he doesn't like turn and then shoot Eddie, but there is a bullet for Eddie in that scene and it is pointed in his general direction. Are you watching it now? No. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I should just pull it up and just let some dead air and be like, all right, let's go to the, let's cut to yeah, the film. Let's go to the shot. We'll be back in five minutes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and that's fine. Like, like I said, that's just my interpretation of the scene. Like I, there is a bullet for him in that scene. The gun isn't necessarily pointed directly at him. Um, and I know that there's a, there's a interview with Chris Penn where he, where he talks about, no, nice guy. He didn't get shot. But there is a bullet for him in the scene. It's just that his, um, I don't know, I can't remember what they're called, but you know the little special effects, uh, little canisters that they put on you that the blow squibs. up? Yeah. Like, it just went off at the wrong time. Oh. <laughs> so that's what he says. But um, So he fell over. But there is a bullet for him in the scene. Yeah. And it all happened so fast. I mean, you really got to break it down, I think, to be like, oh, wait a second. Because otherwise, because <laughs> this is... You know, probably the third or fourth time I've seen it, and I still was like, just never come to mind that he hadn't yeah. been shot by somebody. And that's the that's a that's also a question of of cinema is like, is it about the story, or is it about everything in the movie lining up exactly the way that it should? It's like the I'm a I'm a total gravity apologist. <laughs> like, there's nothing at the beginning of Gravity that says this movie is 100% scientifically accurate. <laughs> like, it, it makes a compelling story. Let it happen, you know? Um, it, like, not everything has to go off without a hitch. And that's the thing. Like, I said at the very beginning of this movie, this film has rough edges. There's, like, scenes where you can kind of see Harvey Keitel's wheels turning as he's trying to figure out what his next line is. Because <laughs> uh, they do these really long shots. Um, which... You know, Harvey Keitel is such a good actor that it. I think I. I feel like it works because it comes across as like realistic. But I. But part of me thinks that he's just kind of like trying to figure, trying to remember his line. Um, and then and then yeah, there's stuff like that. Like you know, they didn't have enough money to do like four setups of that shot. So, they, you know, they got it and it's done. Um, yeah, but you're right, man. Like the efficiency is totally true with Mister White. He only need two bullets, and then he had a, one left to shoot orange in the head took three bullets to kill orange i really want to see this movie with the thirty thousand dollar budget do you though maybe like that's i thought i did (laughs) until you said that (laughs) well levi would you think about it the right i guess i guess it would miss well assuming that he spent like a million dollars because i think it was 1.5 million budget Um, yeah so if you spend a million on stuck in the middle with you (laughs) exactly so we cut that song out first there you go brings it down and 10 percent of what's left well i mean yeah like i said it could definitely be cleaned up but um but but as you as you said at the beginning of the cast leave it's basically a stage play and it was written that way um and I, i i i feel like it's it's a it's an extremely effective movie it's a really really impressive first effort from a director um and it's, yeah, man, it's just fucking planted a flag in the ground for Quentin Tarantino. He's like, I'm here. These are my movies. Deal with it. I didn't go to film school. I went to yeah. films. <laughs> I saw that quote somewhere, and I thought that was, was a pretty cool line. <laughs> it's He really missed an opportunity. Did he say that? Yeah, I think so. He should have said, I didn't go to film school. I watched films that were cool. <laughs> I think you said it better. There you go. <laughs> so after you open up a forum thread about Eric's terrible fan theory, right? <laughs> go ahead and Eric's terrible jokes. Eric's terrible, yeah, jokes, puns, any any of those things. Uh, only I only had one other thing in my notes that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, you know, uh, it, uh, oh, I had a couple other things, but one of them is that there's a hearse in the warehouse. Did you notice that? No. We're yeah, in the warehouse. Like, it's it's like boom, right prominent in the warehouse. There's a scene where Mr. Pink is sitting on top of it. It's in the background when they all get their names. Like it's oh. just it's pretty prominently displayed in there. It's like and basically the the warehouse itself is kind of a death wagon. Everybody who goes into the <laughs> warehouse dies. 
Uh, and there, and there's a freaking hearse there, which I kind of love from a symbolism standpoint. And the final thing I wanted to talk about was just the, um, the commode story. Cause I feel like the commode story kind of illustrates what Quentin Tarantino does. Like for Quentin Tarantino, it's not necessarily about the story. The story is one thing, but if you look at Reservoir Dogs, fairly straightforward story. Um, in fact, it's, you know, some people say that it's a stolen plot from a, uh, from a Hong Kong uh, movie. A Hong but, Kong? I thought it was... People said that it was, like, the killing. No, Cougars. I mean, the, he cited the killing as... Uh, he cited the killing as a influence. Ah. But it, there's a movie called City of Fire... Uh, yeah, City of Fire. Um, which was... is actually a Chow Young Fat joint. Came out in the late 80s. Um, and City on Fire, sorry. Uh, and it basically is the plot of, of Reservoir Dogs. Like, it's like an undercover cop. They even have the standoff scene at the end. Um, it's about a jewel heist gone wrong. (laughs) So, you know, there's correlation there, but if I tell you that, Levi, does that, does that ruin Reservoir Dogs for you at all? No. Because if you said that, then you'd have to say that most Clint Eastwood movies are (laughs) stolen from Kurosawa and other Japanese films. Well, and, and it's like we talked about, man. It's the it's the Quentin Tarantino stew. He's going to take an influence from over here, an influence from over here, and he's got this, you know, relatively straightforward c- plot. I think undercover co- uh, cop plots are pretty damn interesting on the surface. Like, I, I one of my favorite Scorsese movies is The Departed. That movie is great because the tension is so strong. It's basically two undercover cops, one working for the mob, one working for the cops, and they're trying to find each other. But like, but it's a fairly straightforward straightforward plot and then he just in he just infuses it with all of these stories and expositions and interesting tidbits and really it's like you could just see his mind churning a million miles an hour and like i want to talk about this now and that's really it's this story within the story and that's kind of the commode scene or the commode story illustrates that to me is that like if you're going to be an undercover if you're going to be an undercover cop you have to figure out what your story is a, a expositional story that you could tell on the fly. And it's kind of meta in that way. Well, it's like, all about the details. The, yeah. you know, what's the, you know, he's talking about, did somebody destroy a toilet in there? And you look at the details in, in Reservoir Dive. I think that's a, yeah, that is, it's super meta. Yeah. It, it's, it's basically Quentin Tarantino saying, if you want to tell a story, you have to tell another story within that story. If you want that story to be entertaining. And then he's extrapolating that in a movie where he tells a bunch of stories around a story to tell a gianter story. A gianter story. Gianter is a word now. <laughs> well, and that's, uh, that's you know, that's Kill Bill. All about, you know, the, yeah. di- that's Pulp Fiction. It's, you know, he's he's a, a violent, unforgiving Joss Whedon. He's got characters <laughs> with separate stories. And where Joss Whedon wants everybody to have an uplifting ending, Tarantino right. hopes they all die. <laughs> and that's kind of the great thing. I think that's the capper here is that Quentin Tarantino, sure, his movies are violent. Yes, they have, you know, divisive dialogue in many cases. Uh, maybe dialogue that'll make you feel uncomfortable, as I felt uncomfortable at certain points in this movie. But he does it. He does it for entertainment purposes. He's drawing on the things that entertained him and then reflecting those back onto society in his own way. So it's not it's not necessarily onto society through his movies, through telling stories to the society. I don't really think that there's a lot of commentary here from Quentin Tarantino. I think it's really about a guy who watched a ton of movies and picked out all the things that he really liked in those movies and then created movies about those things. Um and I think that the the carry on of the dialogue uh, and the violence uh, is is more referential than it is a, a mirror to society or trying to say something bigger. Can you imagine if he had YouTube when he was younger? <laughs> oh man! Like if he had had access to just the level of exposure that we can get for our work now, yeah, and had just been able to kind of chase that this stuff sooner, yeah. Yep, it's uh, it's real interesting, and I'm really excited now to jump off from this point and go into Pulp Fiction next week. Uh, 
So be sure to go to baldmove.com, guys. We are part of baldmove.com. There's a lot of great entertainment content up on baldmove.com. But there's also the forum. So there will be an official forum thread uh, at baldmove.com slash forums. Or you can just go to baldmove.com and click on forums at the top of the page. Or I think it's actually forums.baldmove.com. Anyway, find the forums. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and uh, comment on that thread about uh, Pulp Fiction, which will be coming up next week. Or you could send us an email, directpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, we'd love to get your take on Pulp Fiction, which we'll be watching next week. Levi, anything else? Um, we'll probably also be watching Spectre. Ooh. Doesn't that come out next week? That's... Oh, I totally blanked on that. Oh, my God. <laughs> I loved I loved Skyfall so much. I thought that movie was amazing, and I'm a little worried about Spectre because I think it'll be. I'm I'm worried it's a Quantum of Solace. No, it's maybe got, that's a little overblown. It's got Christoph Waltz. It, yeah, it's got Sam Mendes, same director as as uh, as um uh whatever Skyfall. So yeah, well, there's no reason to think it won't be good, but I'm a little worried. We'll try I'm not to worried. try not to cross the streams next week. all right and with that folks uh we'll see you next time this is direct i'm eric i'm levi cut